Hey, hey, happy Wednesday, and welcome back to Pathfinder. This is your host, Ryan Duffy, with the slightest of sore throats and raspy voices. So the good news is that my my voice was, was normal for the actual episode. Today's guest is AJ Pippica of the Hermius Corporation, which aims to make hypersonic air travel a reality before the decade is out. I will tell you a little bit more about AJ and Hermius and then bring him on after a quick word from today's sponsor. But don't go anywhere because we'll be back before you know it. Today's episode is brought to you by Altec Incorporated. Altec is a leading custom injection molding and precision machining manufacturer of key parts and components for rockets and satellites. And yes, that includes small sats. Altec works with customers to develop solutions tailored to their mission, needs, and goals. Based in the United States, Altec's dedicated team provides design assistance and manufacturing for proprietary and confidential projects. As if Altec's custom injection molding, in-mold electronics, heat treating, painting, and testing wasn't already the whole nine yards, Altec also provides assembly and kitting for a wide range of structural and mechanical products. Learn more at altec-inc.com. That's A-L-T-E-K-inc.com. AJ is the founder and CEO of Hermius, where he leads a team focused on connecting the globe through the development of the world's fastest passenger aircraft. Prior to founding Hermius, AJ served as CEO of Generation Orbit Launch Services, where he led the inception and development of the X-60A, a U.S. Air Force X-Plane. He has a strong background in aerospace systems design, which includes, is not limited to, spacecraft launch vehicles and hypersonic aircraft. He also holds a master's and bachelor's from the Georgia Institute of Technology, where he focused in aerodynamics, fluid mechanics, and entrepreneurship. AJ dials in to today's episode straight from the belly of the beast, aka Hermius's factory in Atlanta, and discusses the startup's origin story, its technology, its roadmap, and more. Without further ado, AJ Pipica, CEO of Hermius. AJ, welcome to Pathfinder. Hey, Ryan. Glad to be here. So before we started recording, you had just mentioned that you are just back from maternity leave. So congratulations. And how was it? Oh, man. Uh, I've never been away from work for uh, eight weeks in a row. So, uh, you know, it was a little... uh, little anxious to you know hand over the keys from from one baby to uh you know to, to work on another but uh it was it was great you know we've got a fantastic team here i think having your three co-founders um in our founding team or four four total three for me um really makes a, a massive massive difference um and uh yeah it was just fantastic to spend a bunch of dedicated time with with the family and uh yeah excited to be back in the swing of things so so apologize for the for the dad rust that I may have to <laughs> brush off in the no. course of the conversation no, I'm sure not that much dad rust uh, accumulated. I was actually just talking about this with someone on my team yesterday, but I did not take very many. I'm, you know, similar to you. Uh, I didn't take very many PT, PTO days. Like I can count them on my one hand last year. And, but the days I did take off, I was pretty good about just completely ignoring and tuning out Slack and email. Did you find yourself still kind of? getting that urge to check, maybe not urge, but just like feeling compelled to, to check. Yeah, it definitely, um, it definitely, definitely took some active work to not work, uh, while being out and make sure that I'm focused and, and present on the reason that I'm, that I'm not working. Cause you know, being yeah, away totally. in order to be with family, but not actually being with your family and supporting them doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, um, I, I did keep my e- inbox clean. I did not want to come back to 10,000 emails to, to go through. So that was helpful. Also helped me uh, just kind of uh, keep my brain relatively current. Um, just trying to be a passive, uh, you know, fly on the wall for for the past couple months um, and, and stay stay present. But um, yeah, it was, it was great. Um, you know, the, with our our first kid um, a couple years back, um, this, this would have been right before our our Series A. Um, actually, right right after it, uh, I, I took two weeks. This was middle of, middle of COVID, um, and you know, got right back in the swing of things. Um, but, uh, yeah, this was a, a much different experience being over the holidays was, was a little nicer. So things generally tend to slow down a little bit, um, you know, as, as much as it can for, for a startup, but, um, you know, uh, it was, uh, it was really great. Yeah. Yeah. 
and it's full steam ahead. You know, you can hear the the machine machines <laughs> yep. buzzing in the background. I'm sure we'll do some post post to that, but but hopefully folks can hear it at least a little bit that the machines are are working and there's 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 people walking by. So Hermes has has really come on to the scene in the last 18 months or two years. But of course, there's always more to the story than what you see on social media, press releases, that type of thing. There's no such thing as an overnight success in startup land. Not to say that, you know, you have succeeded in the goals that you've set out to achieve, but, you know, you're making progress, which we'll discuss later in the show. But, you know, this overnight success concept is that principle is like put on steroids when you're talking about deep tech and complex engineering and the like. You have been at this since 2018, if I'm not mistaken. So I want to start by rewinding back to then or even before and hearing about Hermes's origin story. Sure. So um, prior to founding Hermes, I was the CEO at a small airspace company here in Atlanta. Um, myself, and my co-founders all worked there together, Glenn, Mike, and Skyler. Um, and uh, we were working on a, a hypersonic rocket plane for the Air Force. So, um, you know, that was kind of my first opportunity to build a company from basically myself, um, up to about 20 people or so, um, all bootstrapped. So never uh, raise any venture capital or any outside capital. Um, it's all on government contracts, um, which, which is good and bad. There's pluses and minuses to that. Um, but, you know, even before that, I've kind of been in and around the hypersonics world, essentially for my whole career. Um, you know, I'm an aerospace engineer by training, focused in um, aerodynamics and uh, design for reusable launch vehicles and hypersonic aircraft. Um, and, you know, as hypersonics, uh, hypersonic vehicles, be they weapons or aircraft, have become more and more relevant, you know, over the past, I think publicly over the past five years in the United States. Um, you know, all that, uh, all that work trying to, you know, learning our way through uh, what's going on both here domestically in the United States as, as well as abroad. Um, I think really helped set us up for uh, getting an understanding of what we needed to build to get to our, our long-term goal, which is, of course, hypersonic passenger, passenger travel. So, um, you know, we, we saw this really interesting coming together of, of timing uh, in 2018. Um, you know, not something that we could go after within uh, the confines of the, of the company that we were at. So we knew we needed to start anew. Um, but the things that kind of gave us confidence is, one, the technology necessary to build a reusable Mach 5 platform um, was, was all mature enough to get started. There weren't really any kind of technical miracles that needed to happen. You didn't need to invent new materials. Uh, you didn't need to invent new propulsion cycles. Um, it was very much an engineering challenge and a very hard one at that. Um, but that's, that's what it was. And you know, being able to leverage modern uh, manufacturing capabilities, um, additive as well as traditional, as well as all the um, kind of computing computational resources we have and um, you know, being in aerodynamic structures or other places, um, you can really iterate through design um, both from an analytical sense as well as in a hardware sense, much faster than you were able to uh, in the past and much less expensively. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the technology piece of it. Um, from a, a customer perspective, you know, we knew we couldn't just go raise billions of dollars to go build a hypersonic passenger aircraft as, you know, kind of the, the dream. Uh, we knew we needed to build a real honest-to-goodness business that while we were de-risking all the technology necessary to get there, um, we're also solving really important challenges for customers. Um, and the customer segment that, that we found, um, which maybe is a no-brainer, but uh, the thing that made, that made most sense um, was really on the national security side, um, certainly here in the U.S. and uh, amongst our allied partners. Um, and you know, that kind of gave us confidence that, hey, there are intermediate markets along the way where we don't have to get all the way to a, you know, an aircraft that can you know, be certified and produced at scale in order to you know, bring in revenue that can allow us to continue to raise the capital that's necessary to get to, to where we want to go at the end of the day. Um, so that was kind of the second piece. And then, and then finally, uh, you know, we'd seen uh, quite a bit of venture capital going to, um, you know, obviously aerospace in general, um, but even more specifically, high-speed uh, mobility, I guess is what I would call it. And, um, you know, we, I think on the back of the success that had been had in the small launch uh, industry and in the small satellite industry, um, uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing, you know, all of those markets in the early stage uh, we're relatively saturated, um, and we saw you know high speed mobility as a place where um, you know people could really start making their bets on uh, you know the next major uh, area of advancement in, in aerospace and in global commerce. So um, you put those those three things together, um, it was it was quite obvious to us that 
you know, this is an opportunity that's, that's here now. Um, it will not be here in five years if we're to start in five years. Um, and I think like almost five years down the road now, that's definitely true. If we're, if we're starting this company today, uh, we'd be in a, a very, very different world and quite behind the eight ball. So this is great because, you know, I think as we'll unpack throughout the conversation, speed is in your DNA at Hermius. And we are proceeding through this conversation swimmingly because my next question was going to be about finding your co-founders, picking the specific problem set that you're tackling and why the timing is right. And we've hit on all three of those. I do want to just before we get too far into this conversation, I want to sh- want to cover what may be a misconception or maybe not commonly understood for for the layperson. Mm-hmm. Hypersonics, when you're referring to speed, is 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 not new, right? Like missiles and orbital class rockets are hypersonic. What's new is the concept of maneuverability and the fact that these systems don't follow like the traditional predictable ballistic trajectory. So mm-hmm. at least from a defense lens, that could in theory render like interceptors and existing defense infrastructure moot. How did I do there to set the scene? Where did I deviate off course? What do you think? That's a, that's a good, good pun there. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think pretty, pretty spot on actually. So I, I think the real distinction between, you know, operational hyper you know, quote unquote hypersonic systems in the past and, and what is being developed as, as new technology today um, is really sustained hypersonic flight. So if you look at you know launch vehicles or reentry capsules, do they fly at you know speeds greater than five times the speed of sound in the atmosphere? Yes. Uh, do they do it for you know extended periods of time or in a sustained fashion? No. You know they're they're essentially transiting the atmosphere. Um, so that's that's the real big difference here. And then same same kind of difference with you know ballistic missiles for for that matter. Um, and you know that's that's where the problem gets gets really hard um, because you know you're no longer just uh, kind of primarily focused on um, the temp, the kind of total or the maximum temperature that uh, you know a vehicle might see. Now you have to deal with the total amount of heat that's going into the system over a period of time, and you know balancing that thermally um, with uh, you know with materials and, and methods that uh, you know have to be reusable. You're not you don't have um, you know ablatives like uh, like a lot of uh, your rancher capsules have. Um, and you know things that are that are designed to operate in these kinds of thermal environments for short periods of time. Now you have to do it for long periods of time. So um, definitely adds quite a bit of complexity to either the material challenges or you know the thermal control system, um, and then of course you know the the overall aerodynamics of the the platform as well and how it's controlled and how it flies and um, you know extend that into how you operate the thing uh, as well. But you know the benefits of, of being able to do that, which kind of as you pointed out from certainly from a you know hypersonic weapons perspective. Of being able to maneuver within the atmosphere, um, and you know, be a little bit more unwarned uh, and flexible in, in what you're doing, of, of course, are, are valuable from a, a national security standpoint. But you know, you extend that um, to you know the uh, the area of reusability, and that's where things really change. Um, you know, reusable hypersonic systems, you know, hypersonic aircraft, um, you know, they are a dual use technology. Hypersonic weapons are, are not. Um, there, there's no commercial use for those, but there certainly are yeah. for, for aircraft. Um, and you know that nexus that's between good, that's a good distinction. I'm glad mm-hmm. I'm glad that you 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 raised that at the top of the show because that that is a good distinction. Yeah, yeah and you know the, the nexus between those two things is I think really where the opportunity here um, is to I think radically accelerate uh, you know where we are with the national security applications of the technology while also um, you know paving the path to making a smaller world at the end of the day. And that's you know really why we started the company. At the beginning. I do before I forget I want to talk just for a second about this con like innovation. And innovation, you know, has in, in bits to be a little bit reductive, has progressed by leaps and bounds in the 21st century. Uh, atoms, some would contest, maybe not as much. And I know that the atoms bits dichotomy is like a little bit of an oversimplification, but I think you and people listening know what I mean. And when you look at the world of atoms, air travel is often, and, and transportation networks, you know, are something that folks will cite when they point to a, a lack of of progress and i think you know especially people I, I, there is there's a line out there in the substacks and twitters but uh, you know effectively today's airline like the the, ju- the jets aren't flying any faster you know civ- at least as it applies to civilian actually, air travel actually fly slower it's pretty funny yeah so you, so what what's yeah. what's going on what, what, yeah so what, why um, is all yeah. this why is this happening <laughs> well, I think I think one of the big things that that 
um, really comes to the, to the table when you know you compare iterating in bits versus iterating in atoms. Um, the cost in both time and dollars and whatever um, of like pressing compile in atoms is very very significant. Um, and you know I think that is uh, a, a means of developing complex systems. You know through through engineering that you know some companies over the past two decades I think have really started to revolutionizing you know SpaceX is probably the, the best example of that and then you know so many companies have, have spun out of uh, alumni from from that organization ours ours included um, that are now taking you know what's been learned there and, and being applied in other areas but um, it's 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 very very hard um, you know to just taking the speed of air travel for for one, um, yeah, if you, if you look back to the you know, Boeing 707, the first kind of you know, real honest-to-goodness commercial airliner, uh, it flew, I don't know, 20-ish percent faster uh, than you know, the latest you know, 737 uh, does today. Um, and, and the reason for that is you know, because of, frankly, physics um, and, and economics. Uh, so there's, you know, once, once you get to the, the sound barrier at, at Mach 1, uh, you know the amount of amount of fuel that you have to burn to to yeah, do that, fuel and what the aircraft looks like um, be, becomes very difficult. And of course, you know we had Concorde, uh, which which cruised at Mach two, um, and uh, you know a lot of people label Concorde as as a failure because it doesn't exist anymore today. Um, and you know I, I would say yeah, I mean it's it's certainly a, a blip on the you know capabilities that we've had in, in transportation networks, but I wouldn't I wouldn't frame it as a failure. I think it kind of died of old age, really. Um, it was very much a success once um, once the operators figured out how to price it. Um, certainly, technology that was ahead of its time, you know, is effectively the Apollo program of of Britain and France um, in in the sixties. Um, but uh, you know, the the reason that we don't have it today is because you know Airbus effectively stopped making parts for it and, and it retired in, in the early two thousands. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it takes an immense amount of of time and money. Uh, to you know, not only design and test, but to certify and you know, put into production uh, an aircraft that's going to carry people. Um, you know, part of the reason for that is because of the you know, the regulatory environment that, that we have today. Um, you know, it's I don't think it's a surprise to many people that you know aviation is almost by far one of the safest ways to travel, and, and you know the reason is because we've over the you know, almost century of commercial aviation, we've found most of the corner cases that, that cause failures. Um, we still have, you know, aviation accidents, um, you know, from time to time. Uh, but, you know, by far, it's safer than, than you know, just traveling on the road with human drivers, at least. Um, and, you know, I think that focus on, on safety, reliability, um, and, and economics uh, is really what has driven the design of, of aircraft um, you know, over the past, you know, four or five decades. And that, that's put us in the, in the box that, that we're in now. Um, you know, it's very hard to bring something new um, in when you know the regulations are what what they are. Uh, you know, if if the Wright brothers had to certify their aircraft uh, under you know Part Twenty Three of the FAA today, uh, they'd probably still be working on it a hundred years later. Um, but I mean, that, that's just kind of the, the nature of things. And I think we'll actually start to see that in in the space launch community uh, at some point in the next you know maybe five ten years as as that continues to mature. Um, in terms of the service, especially as, as it starts branching out into, into human space flight, you know, beyond, um, beyond NASA missions into more and more commercial things. So, um, yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot of things in the way. And uh, I think we, it's not that we haven't had like the technology or the materials or the, the component technologies to do these things, um, but we haven't had the, the processes and the computational tools and manufacturing tools um, to, to do it. And the other, the other big thing in, in hypersonics especially is that it has, you know, Almost, almost exclusively been the realm of governments, um, you know, since since the 1950s when, when it started, um, and we haven't had that you know new new aviation uh, movement that we had in, in in the space world, you know, space launch and, and satellites, you know, started 20 years ago. Um, that's just starting now. You're seeing it in eVTOL, and and you're seeing it here in, in, in high speed as well. And I think that's that's the big catalyst of change that's required to you know actually get a, get over the hump. Right. I think the the government piece. We'll return to that in just a second, but I want to underscore the the tech element of this and your point. You know that in broad strokes, the plan is technically de-risked. Uh, you're not facing sort of any scientific or physics like basic research. Pro- like you don't have to invent anything out of of thin air, so to speak. Uh, it's more an, an an integration 
problem. And of course, you know, I'm not, I'm not, as, as you mentioned, this is still very complex engineering, mm-hmm. but you're leveraging new technologies, you know, additive manufacturing, 3D printing, software, that sort of thing. And while we're on the topic, I'm curious to hear at a high level, maybe to the extent that you can talk about it, what percentage of the stack, broadly speaking, for your early products, like for, for Chimera, the engine that we'll talk more about, what percent of that is kind of commercial off the shelf versus bespoke developed from scratch? Sure. So um, yeah, Chimera is the, the engine that powers Quarter Horse. It's a, a combination of a, a turbojet and a ramjet uh, put together. So uh, we buy the turbojet off the shelf. So that exists, uh, General Electric J85, uh, power the F5 ENF. So if you've seen the original Top Gun, the black planes that fly against Tom Cruise, that's the engine in those airplanes. Um, so uh, we basically cut the afterburner off of that and and take the uh, you know, the, the turbojet, essentially. Um, and then the rest of it is all uh, in-house developed, manufactured, integrated, and, and tested. So um, you know, there's an inlet on the front, uh, pre-cooler bypass system, um, what we call a Ram burner, which is an afterburner uh, that also functions as a ramjet, same piece of hardware, and then a nozzle on the back. Um, so yeah, everything from, from tip to tail outside of the, uh, the turbojet is all uh, developed in-house. And do you want to say a bit about that testing milestone that you recently achieved, accomplished? And we'll put the video up so it's over my head sure. talking right now, but that was, that was one, the, the, you know, the the imagery in the video is just beautiful, but also very important for, for your company and your roadmap and whatnot. Yeah. So what we um, had kind of set out to do with, with that milestone was to demonstrate that um, we can transition from operating under a turbojet power to ramjet power. So in flight, that happens you know, around Mach 3-ish, plus or minus. Um, and it is really kind of the biggest technical risk around the propulsion system that, that there is. Um, there's a lot that has to go right in a very short period of time to be able to do that because you have to effectively turn off the turbojet and turn on the ramjet while not falling out of the sky. And you have to do it fast enough so that you, uh, you know, don't slow down too much to the point where the ramjet won't start. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a very kind of heavily choreographed, choreographed dance um, that uh, we're able to, to accomplish successfully um, up at a test facility at, at Notre Dame, their turbo machinery lab there. So um, effectively a, a wind tunnel on the ground where uh, you know, we hook up their facility to to our engine. Uh, they provide the correct temperature, pressure, flow rates uh, that that you would see at the interface point inside the engine. Um, and then we basically run it through a, a flight profile from you know not moving on the ground to um, a little short of uh, of Mach four in this test campaign. And um, yeah, over the course of uh, a couple weeks, uh, we're able to get all the data that we needed to tune the control system and understand how that transition. Uh, would work properly, you know, started um, the, the operation over a, a long period of time and got it down and down and down uh, to the point where it met the requirements uh, that, that were needed for the vehicle to be able to actually you know, fly that trajectory uh, down the road. So, um, yeah, you know, honestly, the probably the single biggest propulsion risk um, you know, in, in the entire, uh, not just kind of quarter horse program, but, but really the entire roadmap. Um, and it kind of validates the idea that you can take an off the, ju- off the shelf, you know, turbojet engine um, operate it up to about Mach three with with a pre cooler, and then transition to a ramjet. Keep accelerating. Um, you know, without that uh, working properly, um, you know, you have a, a very expensive and very heavy uh, you know supersonic airplane, um, which uh, you know doesn't really bring the, the value that uh, that we're looking for. So um, yeah, yeah, huge milestone for the team. When we're able to do it in a in a relatively um, you know fast the uh, fast period and and for a relatively small amount of dollars, if you compare it to some of the government programs. Um, that have uh, explored these risks in the past. So I think you know, that that kind of continues to demonstrate um, you know, this, this new space or new aviation um, approach to, a, uh, to developing complex systems. And, and you put a dollar value on that, right? Like when you made the announcement, yeah, was, you said how much you spent. $20 million. Yeah, that's yep. pretty, pretty remarkable that you do that. And we'll, we'll get to that as well and with the whole kind of building in, in public concept. But the geopo- geopolitical buff in me has to ask this because i'm curious and obviously you have better insight on this than than almost anyone but you you know you hear often that america america's hypersonics program or capabilities are trailing that of china and russia and there 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 are you know plenty of examples there was a there was a test of the the bobs like glider system for china that as you mentioned you know that probably 
in, you know, in, in, in classified environments, there was probably aware awareness of that going back a while, but it was, it came out in a report last year at some point, but just want to get your take here on that technology gap and whether, you know, it's real or perceived and if it's real, why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think uh, there's there's certainly a, a difference in the um, kind of the, the states at which the you know, hypersonic weapons development programs are, are at in you know, the U.S. and China and Russia. Um, you know, I think a couple years ago it was it was quite obvious that we were very very far behind. Um, the DoD, um, you know, through the Office of Secretary of Defense's leadership and, and you know, primarily through the Air Force, but the other services as well. Um, you know, in that five-year period, I, I think have come a very, very long way. Um, you know, we we now uh, are in the kind of operational testing phases for um, at least one hypersonic weapon system, uh, with a few others uh, starting to make that transition out of kind of the DARPA world into the actual uh, honest to goodness Air Force world, um, and that that will continue. So, um, you know, I think we've uh, and we're starting to you know consider putting those things in, into production, um, which which is good. Um, but, uh, I think if, if you look at the metric of, um, you know, kind of tests per unit time, how many hypersonic flight tests, uh, are being done, you know, per year in, in the U S versus, versus China, um, uh, there's still a pretty darn big gap there. And, and I think, uh, I think that will, that will continue to improve, um, you know, over the coming years as, as, uh, operational systems start coming online and, uh, and other test capabilities start coming online. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the willingness to take technical risk, um, in, in development of these systems, um, there, there is a bit of, of disparity between, you know, how, uh, you know, our traditional government programs approach that relative to, um, you know, how, uh, how other countries do. And, and that's, that's part of, um, what created that, that gap in the first place. You know, also we, we pretty significantly deprioritized hypersonics for, um, you know, about five or six years. Um, and you know, in that time we, we published all the work that we had done previously. So it gave everybody else a pretty darn good head start. Um, you know, the, the reasons that, you know, different countries are developing, you know, hypersonic weapons technology, um, they, they differ, you know, um, I think China has different ideas for how to employ hypersonic weapons than, than we do. Um, but nevertheless, they, they are still quite, quite useful. Um, though there certainly will be some questions um, uh, at some point down the road, as, as they do become operational, you know, when does it make sense from a, you know, cost benefit or cost per effect, um, uh, perspective relative to other ways to accomplish, uh, you know, certain objectives. Um, but, you know, needless to say there, there are very important and strong, uh, you know, arrow in the quiver or, or a tool in the tool chest, um, to continue to deter conflict, um, in different parts of the world. Yeah. You mentioned tool chest and I want to touch on the war chest uh you know just the, the, this concept of raising capital and and being a venture backed startup and i'm curious to hear your perspective on sort of the capital intensity or or efficiency part of of this equation how how do you think that you stack up against other programs whether public or private that are developing similar capabilities yeah, I think um, you, know, you can kind of look at what's been accomplished with uh, you know, with what amount of capital thus far. I think we've we've generally been fairly transparent about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, totally. part of the reason is because we take a lot of pride in uh, moving very quickly, buying down technical risk very quickly, and doing so in a very capital efficient manner. Um, and I think it it can kind of put pressure on um, you know on those in government looking at you know the the kinds of the amounts of dollars that are being spent in other other development programs and. You're seeing what's coming out of those and the pace at which it's coming out, and um, you know it starts to change people's mental model of of what is possible. Um, yeah, you know this, this same thing happened in, in space launch, right? You know NASA did an independent cost assessment of what it it should have taken SpaceX to get the Falcon One to orbit, and it was like I don't know half a billion dollars or more, and they did it with less less than a hundred million, um, and NASA ver- validated it themselves. Um, so. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of different reasons, you know, for why that's possible. Um, you know, part of it is, uh, you know, the vertically integrated nature of, of commercial companies going after these kinds of really deep tech things. And it's not just in, in aerospace, um, you know, nuclear is, is another where I'm sure you're going to continue to start continue to see, uh, more and more breakthroughs happening in the, um, you know, the, the venture backed world versus the, the pure government world. Although, um, definitely have seen some, some massive advances on the, the government side, uh, recently. Um, 
but uh, yeah, you know, I think um, once you can kind of get people to understand what is possible, the you know what rate can you know technology be de-risked and actually transition to operational capability in in the um, you know the national security sense. Um, now people start thinking about you know hypersonic aircraft have been you know 15, 20 years away and always will be. So you know there's really nobody out there operationally planning, thinking about well, what does a hypersonic aircraft do in a war game? Why do I care if it's not available you know for 20 years? Um, and part of our job uh, is is to show that yeah, it actually is quite possible and, and perhaps even probable that hypersonic aircraft um, you know, could be out there operating you know in in the theater in the second half of this decade. And you know that starts to to get people thinking, um, you know, okay, let me let me believe that for a second. What does that mean? And you start to play that out, and and that's where you really start to see the value proposition of of what these things can do and then why they should be invested in. So, um, you know, as far as like, do we live up to our own? Um, I think standard for for ourselves in terms of our our pace and capital efficiency and uh, the rate at which we can iterate. Um, probably not. I think, I think there's still a lot that, that we have to continue to improve and internally, um, to get to the point where, you know, we are where, where we want to be. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to not look at what's happening in Boca Chica. Um, the number of ridiculously massive rockets that are, that are being built, you know, the number of Raptor engines that are coming off of a production line. Um, you know, there's obviously quite a bit of capital being, being put to work there, but at the same time, it's way less than anybody thought was, was probably required to do that. So, um, yeah, I think, I think we, we still have, uh, still have room for improvement and, and we definitely have, uh, you know, other companies out there who, who are pushing us to, to better ourselves as well. But, um, you know, uh, even if we do half as well as we think we should do, we're still quite a, quite a bit ahead of, of what most people expect. Totally. And last sort of, we have a lot of founders and Pathfinders audience, the so last kind of founder oriented question, you how did you communicate all of that to your investors? You know, you have some blue chip names on your cap table. Last year, you had announced, I think, in March that Sam Altman had led your $100 million Series B. And for anyone who's not, you know, like terminally online and on scrolling through tech Twitter all the time, that's Sam is the, the CEO of OpenAI, which is the the company behind ChatGPT, but I digress. How did you convince investors when you were left of some of these developments that you've mentioned? You know, most most recently, maybe that that uh, ramjet turbojet test. Sure. So, how did you get them to believe? Um, yeah. So, I think you know, investors are, are willing to take risk, but they're not willing to take all types of risk, and certainly not all at the same time. So, I think you can kind of break risk down into into three buckets. Um, you know, team risk. Uh, tech risk and, and market risk, um, and, and generally, you know, investors are willing to take one of those. So, if you're in a deep tech area, hypersonics, nuclear, space, um, you're going to have tech risk. So, mm-hmm. team risk and market risk have to be you know, undeniably, uh, you know, low because uh, you know you're, you're going to take the tech risk. Um, so for us, um, you know, the, the fact that, you know, the four of us, um, you not only had, had quite relevant experience in the different technical areas, um, you know, I'd run a small company before, um, we'd been together for, for three years. So we knew each other really, really well. Um, we were, we had the kind of trust, I think that that's necessary amongst the founding team to you know, jump off an airplane, not just yourselves, but with your families and try to build an airplane on the way down. Um, you know, I think, I think that really, really came through. Um, and then on the, on the market side, um, you know, of course, our, our long-term vision of, of high-speed passenger travel, um, there's, you know, you can argue, you know, left, right, and center uh, as to whether that's, that's possible or not, whether the economics are good or not, um, you know, within the realm of uncertainty, of which uncertainty is quite high, um, success is definitely a possible outcome. Is it the likely one? No. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, are people going to invest billions to go answer that question? No. Um, but the obvious thing that people saw was if you can deliver hypersonic aircraft that are autonomous um, in a reasonable period of time on the scale of you know what it took SpaceX ish you know to get to somewhere between Falcon One and Falcon Nine, um, that is going to be massively relevant geopolitical technology for decades to come. So if you can pull that off, if you can get the tech to the point where you can actually deliver that capability to the DoD and actually sell to the DoD at scale you will win. Um, and uh, I think that's, that's kind of the, the story. And it, it, it's, it's not a story that 
uh, is kind of easy to tell and, and get across to every investor because um, you know you have to understand um, you know how complex system development works, what the timelines and, and you know dollars dollar figures are for that, um, what it means to sell to the government. You know um, that's that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, folks who are actually interested in, in investing in defense uh, technologies um, that that also kind of narrows things down. So yeah, um, you know, we were really really excited um, to to work with. The folks, uh, the folks who have supported us over the years, um, and I think uh, a lot of their willingness to you know, take a step in this direction um, really comes from the success that uh, I think SmallSat launch and, and small satellites themselves uh, have had from a venture perspective. Um, you know, we probably couldn't have started this company five years prior to when we did because um, I think the the you know jury was still out as to is investing in in deep tech yeah. or aerospace a viable place to invest and. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think the, the jury's back in and positive on that now. Um, and then of course, you know, you play in the timing of what's going on geopolitically in the world, you know, we weren't, totally. there wasn't a war going on between Russia and Ukraine back then, but, uh, you know, the warning signs were, were there, be it, you know, in, in Eastern Europe or, um, you know, in, in the South China sea, uh, they were all there at the time. So, um, you know, I think you, you can, the evidence of the, the uptick in defense investing more broadly, I think speaks to that as well. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's that's the the big bones of it. To an earlier point, you know, timing is everything, and I want to zero in on this topic of kind of minimizing, reducing, eliminating execution risk by sort of laddering up to your your you know twenty twenty nine product, which is the the civilian uh, or passenger hypersonic aircraft through these other products. And we will do that right after a quick break. Altec is a leading custom injection molding and precision machining manufacturer of key parts and components for rockets and satellites. And yes, that includes small sats. Altec works with customers to develop solutions tailored to their mission needs and goals. Learn more at altec-inc.com. That's A-L-T-E-K-inc.com. All right, we are back. And as I mentioned, for the break, I want to look a little bit closer at the portfolio of products that you're developing and the timeline and just the the arc of progress and iteration because they are they all are they all are, excuse me, like closely coupled in terms of of what they mean and how they lead to the next product. So I think the audience would love to hear a little bit more about Chimera, Quarter Horse, Dark Horse, and Halcyon. Yeah, so um, you know we all we started kind of the you know developing this this roadmap this product roadmap with Halcyon because uh, you know that's the um, you know the, the vehicle that will you know answer the the reason that we started the company in, at, at the first place and um, you know laid that vehicle out and, and said okay what are the what are the technical risks associated with this with this vehicle what needs to be proven out what needs to be de-risked um, and there's a slew of of different things you know technologies and and you know really integrated systems capabilities uh, that that came out of that and. I said, okay, um, what's the smallest version of, of, you know, that, that we can build to attack most of those. And, um, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of where, where quarter horse came from. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing that we identified was obviously the, the propulsion system, uh, the structures and, you know, the operations of, of a vehicle that flies up to Mach five and back. Um, and that's really what came out to, to set the, um, you know, the requirements for, for quarter horse, you know, demonstrate mode transition in flight, um, get up to, uh, you know, as, as, as high of a speed as you can beyond that. Um, I think uh, we'll probably hit around Mach four with quarter horse, um, and you know come back and, and be reusable, um, and, and that really starts to it forces you when when you set those kind of integrated uh, product milestones, it forces you to solve a lot of the problems associated with with getting there, um, but not all of them. Um, so you know we're we're not building something that's going to carry people. Uh, we're not building something that has to cruise at you know Mach four to five for extended periods of time. So we're able to descope quite a bit and really, really focus our efforts on on solving you know a small chunk of key risks, not trying to bite off everything all at once. Um, and then you know Dark Horse does that again. So you know once once you've built an engine that can that can operate, you've built an aircraft around that engine, you've flown that aircraft and engine. Um, you know now you can build something that is you know, operationally useful, and, and that's what uh, what what Dark Horse is really focused on. And again, the the use case here is is primarily. Um, you know, defense related, although there are some commercial applications for it as well. Um, and quarter, you know, but, quarter, but dark- just, just to, to jump in quarter horse is 
a subscale dark horse with just less of the bell, bells and whistles. Is that uh, right? It's, it's, its own its its own aircraft design. Uh, it doesn't okay. really have kind of uh, okay. traceability of the configuration. It has a different mission, so you know it's it's an accelerator only, which which drives you to um, a bit of a different uh, different look than than Dark Horse has. So Dark Horse will look closer to Halcyon than Quarter Horse looks to Dark Horse. Okay. Okay. Yeah. What what's what what just so we can anchor this? What is what what is the timeline for both of those look like? And then also, will Quarter Horse be monetized or i suppose commercialized or will it more so be mm-hmm. kind of dog fooding and like you know testing yeah, and so validating things you know num- number one purpose for for quarter horse is, is to buy down those those technical risks um okay. there's certainly some residual capability in it uh when it's when it's completed that's in terms of high-speed flight testing and starting to demonstrate some of the um you know the capabilities that dark horse will eventually need to have uh, from a defense perspective so all the mission system integration you know cameras antennas um, communication systems, all, all those types of things uh, that, that haven't really operated in those kinds of environments before up at you know, Mach 4 to 5. Um, doing that with Quarter Horse is, is you know, quite useful and, and can certainly generate some revenue for the company, um, <laughs> along with all the other kind of like basic and fundamental research that you know, flying at those speeds and altitudes yeah. can, can do. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, for, for us, we, we like to make our, our products obsolete as, as quickly as possible and, and can, you know, continue moving forward. Um, you know, dark horse will be, will be able to do everything that quarter horse can do much better, much less expensively, much faster. Um, and then, you know, again, Halcyon, uh, you know, the same way. So, um, but, uh, yeah, so, you know, what, what actually ends up playing out in terms of how long quarter horse is a product, um, versus things moving over to, uh, to dark horse, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it was similar to, you know, what happened between Falcon one and Falcon nine, you know, Falcon one had a massive right. backlog. It only flew, I think one or two commercial missions. Um, and then everything, everything was re-manifested over to Falcon 9. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, if something like that happens, uh, you know, for us as well. We've hit on use cases for Dark Horse and I just, I guess I'm, I want to double click on it and hear like what all the possible use cases that you're envisioning now for that vehicle would be. And if you think that, you know, when this platform is online, and it's at the price point that you envision and at a production rate that you envision, if you think that there are applications, use cases that no one has even thought of yet that then become feasible. Sure. Um, you know, so I'll start with the kind of defense area. I can't get too deep into the uh, kind of specifics of, of the use cases as, as yeah, those get, yeah. uh, <laughs> get pretty, pretty classified pretty quickly. I, but, I don't want to yeah, um, get you in any trouble. <laughs> But uh, you can kind of use your imagination. Um, you mm-hmm. know, uh, the SR-71 is, is a pretty good example. Um, you know, just that as a baseline, being able to do that uh, less expensively, faster, more survivably, um, you know, from a uh, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance perspective, um, and, and perhaps even more importantly, uh, without people on board, um, mm-hmm. you know, that in and of itself uh, is probably worthy of, of developing the, the vehicle. Um, but there are certainly other other capabilities that um, that are possible uh, when you can start dropping things, um, be they you know sensing nodes or, or other things as well, um, and uh, in, and so forth. But um, you know beyond the defense applications from a commercial perspective, you know cargo is is probably the the first one that that comes about. Um, you know the uh, the vehicle won't have uh, the range that that Halcyon will. Um, that's that's for sure. It's a much smaller vehicle, but at the same time, there's there's still some pretty interesting. Uh, things that can be done, um, and then you know, you ask like, okay, you, you thought of these already. What what comes up after this thing is is actually in the air and going? Um, uh, it'd be pretty interesting to actually fly on a dark horse uh, one day in the future, as, <laughs> you know, as, as a person. Um, you know, there's there's something surreal about uh, you know the connection that human beings have to airplanes um, relative to like rockets, and I think a, a big piece of it is because like people fly on airplanes all the time. Um, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I guarantee, I guarantee you, AJ, that once dark horse is flying, you're going to get a call from Tom Cruise. He's going to, he's going to want to be one of the first to fly on it. <laughs> yeah. And, I'm sure. and Halcyon I'm sure. for that matter. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. on Halcyon, you know, the, the, I'm, I'm going to kind of read out the spec sheet here, rattle off some quick numbers, fly at Mach five and five X faster than any airliner private jet on the market today does that that figure doesn't include sort of that that's that's for civilian aircraft right 
And I, you know, I could, I could have looked this up before, but like the F 35 is a little bit faster, obviously. Yeah. So actually um, the F 35 is one of the slower supersonic aircraft that we have. Uh, okay. so I think the F 15 still holds the kind of top speed for active aircraft around two five. Okay. I need to do, I need, I, my, my diligence below the Carmen line is, is not as good <laughs> as it is above, but getting back to the, the specs, 20 passengers, 4,600 miles of range, titanium alloy structure. And I think this is, this is where it's going to click for people. Seattle to Tokyo in under three hours, LA to Honolulu in one hour, New York to London, 90 minutes. You know, you, the, the list goes, goes on and on. What, 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 when you bring this product to market, have you, do you have any sense of what the demand will look like and how that will afford pricing power along with obviously what your cost structure will be, or is it a little bit too soon to be thinking about any of that? Oh, no, I think um, you have to make assumptions uh, in order to kind of get a feel for, for how the numbers fall out. And, and that's where the uncertainty is in, in those assumptions. But um, I think even even making a, a reasonably conservative set of assumptions in terms of um, you know market capture and, and things like that, um, you know, the market for these aircraft is not like tens; it's it's definitely hundreds. Um, you know, there's there's well over a hundred different routes um, across the globe that these aircraft make sense to fly on uh, without flying supersonic over land. Um, so we wanted to make sure that that made that uh, conservative assumption, given that laws are going to have to change in order to uh, for that to change. Um, but uh, and is that is sorry to interrupt. Is that the yeah. is that kind of based on the precedent of the Concorde? Yeah. So um, when the Concorde started operating into the United States and I think in Europe as well, um, they put a law into effect that uh, you can't fly commercially greater than Mach one over land. Um, so that that and that's literally what the law says. It doesn't matter how loud you actually are, um, you just can't fly uh, supersonic over land. So. Um, from a from a commercial commercial aircraft, so um, I think that that law will actually change. Um, you know, NASA has a program going on right now called the X fifty nine low boom supersonic demonstrator that's supposed to gather the data to inform um, what that regulation should actually look like to kind of be a performance spec where it's like, okay, you, you can't make more than this amount of noise at the surface. Show us that you do that in your certification program, and then go fly fast. Um, once once that happens and those regs change, I think you will see a, a massive boom of of supersonic aircraft and the you know Mach let's say one, two to one, five range. Um, and then, uh, and then we'll see where things go from there. But, uh, yeah. What will the in cabin experience look like for that 20 passenger aircraft? Compared I'll tell to- you something you will not see on this aircraft. And that is lay flat seats because you won't be on the aircraft long enough to, <laughs> there you um, go. There you yeah. Go. So, uh, I think this is something that Concord actually got wrong. Um, you know, the, uh, the cabin experience was very much like an economy cabin that you, that you would see today. Um, so, you know, do you think the experience needs, needs to be elevated to, to some level? But um, you, you'll probably see like um, premium, like, you know, if you fly Delta Comfort Plus or like a premium economy um, style seat, maybe somewhere between that and a, and a business class seat. Um, single aisle, um, obviously, um, probably uh, one seat on either side of the aisle. Um, so a little bit more privacy, you get both an aisle and a window seat in every seat. So, um, that's, that's a plus. Um, but, uh, I mean, I think the, the most important thing about the, the, the on aircraft experience is the fact that you're not on the aircraft very long. Um, and you, know, you get to sleep in your own bed. Uh, and, and that's really where, where the value comes from. So, um, yeah. And that's, I think something that you don't necessarily get at, you know, at the supersonic speeds, you know, Mach, Mach two and below, um, you're, you're still on the airplane for, uh, you know, three plus hours across the Atlantic and, you know, five, six hours across the Pacific. So, um, you know, you don't get to kind of take credit for, uh, you know, it being essentially more like a a regional jet, um, which is, uh, which is quite important. Mm -hmm. So all, all this, you know, in theory pencils in for me, where you do lose me though, is when you say that hypersonic travel has the potential to add more than 4 trillion of global GDP growth per year by radically accelerating the speed of commerce and cultural exchange. I'm curious how you back into that number. Obviously this is, you know, this is, this involves a lot of extrapolation. So the normal caveats apply, but I still want to ask about it. Yeah. So, um, it's, uh, we, we did a, it's called a meta analysis. So basically we looked at, um, a number of papers analyses that the people had done in the past, looking at the effect of the speed of transportation or the change in speed of transportation networks on the change in, um, you know, economic activity. 
And um, there was pretty clearly a relationship between um, kind of the, the size of, of, you know, the GDPs of, of two different locations and the economic distance between them. Wow. So you get the, the relationship is, it, it works almost exactly the way that gravity works. So gravity is a function of the, the mass of two objects and the distance between them. Um, you know, trade works pretty much exactly the same way. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit more linear. Um, so not, a, not as uh, kind of uh, strong of a force as you get closer. But, um, you know, the, the kind of distance between uh, cities, if you will, um, is, is uh, kind of what's called economic distance. So it takes into account um, essentially the, the burden of, of transporting goods and services between those. Um, so part of that is cost um, and part of it is, is speed and part of it is, is actual distance. So um, you, you play all that out with all the numbers. Um, you increase the speed by 5x and you keep the pricing um, you know, about what it is for, uh, you know, current business class, um, work that out to, um, you know, kind of how many hours people save, um, and, and play that all the way through. Um, it comes out to, I think like two to two and a half percent GDP growth that that drives, um, across, across the world. Um, you know, in these, you know, hundred plus city pairs that are now connected much faster than, than ever before. Um, and you know, that is, that is new economic growth. It's not economic growth that comes from, you know, taking it from somewhere else. It's not zero sum. It's, it's new. It's, it, it's sitting there waiting to be unlocked. And, and the way you unlock it is, is to bring this technology to bear. That is fascinating. Is that meta analysis public? Fascinating. Uh, we, mind blowing. we haven't, we haven't published it yet. Um, we, we probably will okay. at, at some point in the Stay future. Tuned. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta have a steady drip of, of hype as a, as a startup. Oh, yeah. So that, that was the first question of my my Max Q segment, which is a new segment, and uh, I think that that was a, that was a fascinating answer. I'm gl- I'm glad I asked it. Second question is all in. How much capital do you think will be required to get to? I was going to ask about each product, but I think I'm just going to skip skip uh, right ahead to to you know air, uh, uh, Halcyon. I had to look yeah. up how to pronounce it. I'm not going to lie, and I, I'm still <laughs> tripping over it. But I, you know, I know, I know you probably don't want to share exact figures or don't even necessarily know it yet. But have any ballpark that you'd care to share? Yeah. So I'll say it's it's not one billion, but it's not ten billion. Um, okay. It's uh, you know my my gut says it's uh, depending on how well um, we do from the dark horse perspective and and what that market ends up looking like, um, you know, how much external capital in addition to the kind of free cash flow from the business is required. Um, I could see that being less than a billion. Um, yeah, but in, in there, reality, there are multiple possible yeah, features. Yeah. In, in reality, um, I mean, I don't think there's, there's been a, a kind of a, a large business jet um, or large aircraft program that's gone through certification for less than a billion dollars. And, you know, Gulfstream, that's, I think, did it. That was the next uh, thing I was going to ask you about. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the nice things that, that does keep that cost lower than it might otherwise be, so what keeps it closer to the one than, than the 10, is the fact that we don't need to develop a clean sheet gas turbine engine. So if you remember back to the beginning of the conversation, we're buying, you know, turbojets and turbofans off the shelf and modifying them. And developing a ramjet is much, much simpler than developing a, you know, high performance uh, gas turbine engine. I think this is um, one of the other kind of fundamental differences between you know what we're doing up at the Mach four to five range and and you know what a lot of other folks are are looking at in the you know, Mach one point five ish range, um, you know supersonic commercial aircraft need a brand new engine that operates efficiently both at low speed and at high speed because you're using that engine for cruise so that's going to drive your overall mm-hmm. economics of your business. Um, for us, the ramjet is what drives the economics and that is a much much simpler device and something that uh, can be developed much more much more quickly. Um, and I think that kind of fundamentally changes the kind of development economics uh, of how you get there in, in the first place, let alone the, you know, the, the markets that are available along the way. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's that's what kind of drives us to that uh, the lower end of that spectrum. Gotcha. Why do you think that you can outmaneuver, pun intended, the defense primes? I only snuck two puns in and we're done. <laughs> I'm, I'm done. No more. No more. All good. All good. Um, I don't think it's a matter of outmaneuvering them necessarily. Um, I think it is really about finding the the right way to be a part of of the ecosystem. Um, there's always going to be a place for the Lockheed Martins, the Boeing's, the Northrop's, the, you know, the Raytheon's of the world. Um, but there is also a place for um, I think uh, you know niche capabilities that are really good at one thing. Um, so and it's most not, of the go ahead. Sorry. 
to your, to your point earlier, it's not necessarily zero sum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I think you'll start to see this in some of the Air Force's programs that are that are coming about here. So you have the next generation air dominance fighter that'll be built by a prime. But there's a whole family of systems that goes along with that, you know, smaller um, uh, uncrewed systems and, and so forth that will probably be built by companies that, you know, aren't those those four. Um, and, uh, you know, the defense industrial base has, I think, really suffered from a massive amount of consolidation over the past couple of decades. Um, there's some really that's, interesting charts that's my on, next, on the internet. That's I, hopefully I don't I don't tip anyone else off, but that's that's <laughs> my next like kind of evergreen project is mapping it out because there's the mark oh, there's yeah. the maps of the consolidation up until a few years ago. But as yep. as anyone who reads payload will know that that's, there's been there's been a lot more in the, in the past few there's years. There's a lot there's a lot more lines that uh, don't have any branches yet. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which, which is exactly. which is really great, and I think I think it's necessary. And I think you know what I kind of see the future of you know the defense industrial base being is you will have these smaller um, you know, focused companies that, that do bespoke things really well. And you'll get that specialization that, um, you know, you don't get from a company that builds everything from, yeah. uh, you know, military IT systems to, you know, to, to bombs, to airplanes, to helicopters, to tanks. Um, it, it's a very different thing. And I think one of the, the biggest things that you miss in the defense primes and, and even in, in, you know, some of the, the venture back companies that are, that are focused on working with the DOD in, in a more broad sense is, you know, that, that sense of mission, um, you know, for, for a pure defense company, there's always a sense of mission of, of supporting, um, you know, the warfighter and, and that, that will always be there. But, um, from a, you know, technology sense or a product roadmap sense, um, uh, there isn't like a goal that you're trying to get to. Um, and I think that was one of the fundamental differences at, at SpaceX, right? Like SpaceX didn't set out to, you know, build a, a rocket to launch military satellites. It does that a lot. Didn't set out to build a military, you know, communications constellation. It, it did it. Its goal is to make humanity multiplanetary. And along the way, as you solve the technology problems, there are all these other problems that you can solve for customers that are really high value. And, and you know, that's, that's what you have to do. And that, that's kind of you know, the, the setup that, that we've got as well. Um, you know, our our long-term vision is to radically accelerate air travel. And along the way, uh, we're going to solve some really important national security challenges. Yeah. Yeah. Last, last Max Q question, then we're going to move on to the, the fun stuff. And in the interest of time, I'm, next, next time we talk, I want to talk about how hypersonics change the calculus of deterrence, but we will have to oh, yeah. save that for next time. <laughs> that that but, is definitely a full full conversation on its own. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, do you worry about the convoluted and protracted nature of government procurement at all in terms of <laughs> assessing oh, the man. next next that's, few years? That, that's that, also another. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of my that's one I'm of just, my triggers. Um, yeah, so I kind of alluded to it earlier when we were talking about um, you know how you you speak about this with, with investors. Um, you know, the complexity of of engineering. A hypersonic aircraft is one thing. The complexity of engineering, kind of the human systems of how you work with, you know, the U.S. government at scale is is a problem of similar proportion. Um, that you know, startups are, are generally not built to to do. Um, so you know, we we took that as something that we needed to really focus on early from from the very beginning. We knew that we were going to be working with the government, so we we kind of built the company up from from the ground up to be prepared to do that and. Um, you, you really have to like it has to be core to your business. It's it's really difficult, I think, for um, you know companies where working with the government is kind of a, a nice to have or a small thing. Uh, you kind of have to be all in because of you know. And for us, it's it's existential. Like if we don't um, end up delivering this capability, um, then you know the the company is not going to achieve its 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 end goal. So um, yeah, and uh, as far as like. You know, acquisition reform and and you know budgeting reform and all these things that are that are going on up on up on Capitol Hill these days. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely stuff that we track on a regular basis. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm like, acquisition talk is one of my one of my favorite pods. So uh, yeah, that 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 sits in the in the front of my mind all all day. I'll have to check. I I, have, uh, I haven't listened to any. I'll have to check that out. I think that sounds like it, I would I would. You know, there's there's a specific type of person, or maybe has professional interests that would listen to that podcast. But I'm sure that that's a, that's a great great niche for a podcast. But moving on to to the the brand and and sort of storytelling, you know, Hermes is definitely unique in this regard and in a good way. You definitely embrace this concept of building in public that you see in the software world, and I think that a lot of aerospace. Uh, a and D companies could could take a page from your playbook. You know, this is something that I harp on a lot. That guests of Pathfinder have harp, harped on a lot. That we've harped on and payload a lot. Like, like the industry has to do a better job of 
kind of branding, marketing, telling its story to to you know for 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 to win the public over to to justify tax taxpayers like where their money's going to and to win recruits over for other industries, inspire new generations. You know, list goes on and on. And you seem to have gotten that pretty early, and you're doing a great job of it. Like you know, people, you're 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 You've made like travel posters that are retro, that are super cool. Your merch store is great. You know, you, you obviously like you have a full AV setup at, at your warehouse. Um, you guys have your own podcast, that sort of thing. Can you say a bit more about that and what when you kind of made that decision that you wanted to be really open and and, yeah. and public and share your story? Yeah, so- with with any startup, you know, there's there's especially in, in you know uh, deep tech, there's this you know, do we stay stealth for as long as possible until we have something real, or do we do we put it out there? Um, I think the thing that really drove us to be transparent and authentic and and really try and tell our story um, was the fact that it, it's so critical for people to know you in order to attract the talent that's necessary in in the very early early days, um, and then it all it is also such a strong influencer on. Um, and kind of reinforcement of the culture that you're trying to build. Um, so you get to talk about the culture that you're trying to build internally and you get to do it, do it externally. Um, but like for four engineers, it is not a natural thing to say, hey, instead of hiring another engineer, we're going to build a, a really kick-ass marketing team. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll credit my co-founder Skyler um, with, with really leading that. Um, you know, I think the experience that, that we had, the four of us at, at the previous company that we're at, it was something that, that was missing and, and you know, that, was, that was difficult. I think recruiting was, was another thing there that, that we invested in early on that, that helped us move quickly. But um, it doesn't matter kind of what kind of technical achievements you, you hit or what kind of business achievements you can hit. If you can't tell a story that people identify with and people kind of emotionally connect to, then it's as if it didn't happen. Um, and that's it. It's a very like it's it's not like a thing you can calculate an ROI on directly, but you know it, um, and you can see it in in all sorts of elements of the company. Um, and uh, you know, being able to, to tell your story and be authentic and open. Um, I, I think really adds a, a layer uh, of you know uniqueness, and I mean you mentioned it yourself um, that you know sets us apart from uh, from a lot of uh, you know a lot of other places that that people can choose to spend their time. And um, you know we we all certainly think that this is the single most important place we can be spending our time. And um, you know being able to kind of share how we come to that conclusion, why we believe that with with other people as, as broadly as possible, um, I think is is massively important. Yeah. Last question in this, and then we'll move to the lightning round. Um, which I'm hope I hope you're you're super ready for the lightning round because it's all about just quick, and you guys are all about speed too. But talk, say say a bit about Atlanta and why you're based in Atlanta and how that's a competitive advantage for you. Yeah, so um, we we were in Atlanta before. So um, starting a company, we decided not to spend money on moving and spend it on building the company. Um, but uh, you know, Atlanta is a really fantastic place to, to build a company like this. Um, you know, great university system, uh, pretty good talent pool. Um, you know, Georgia is actually pretty heavily invested in aerospace. You've got Lockheed Martin here, Gulfstream here, Delta headquartered here. Um, plus, from a commerce perspective, Home Depot, um, UPS, others, Coca-Cola, of course. Um, and uh, you know, most most aerospace talent, um, certainly the the type that that we look for, is generally out on on the West Coast. You know, L.A. Every company is is part of L.A. Um, you know, Seattle is kind of you know Boeing's town or maybe Blue Origin's town. Um, but you know, we felt that this is really an opportunity for for us to make Atlanta our town um, and, and really make a positive impact on on the community. And you know, there's there's a lot of people who want to work on the hardest problems in in aerospace. With the best people, but don't necessarily want to live on, on the West Coast. You know, they'll they'll do it because that's that's where the problem set is, and, and that's where they're they're driven. But um, we've had you know so many people come and join the company because you know uh, either they've got family in, in the area or even on the East Coast um, that uh, you know is is really unique here. There there really aren't um, you know that many other places uh, you know that that you can do this kind of work. Certainly from like an operational perspective, there's lots of stuff down in, in Florida at the Cape, um, but like you know airspace R and D and aircraft development. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it sets the part. So, um, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, right? So, you know, we end up having to, to relocate a lot more people. We do have an office in, out in LA, uh, as, as well. Some people just, just flat out can't move for, for a wide range of, of different reasons. 
Um, but uh, you know, I think it, it's still you know net net wins out wins out quite a bit because we get to you know really stand up. So I take it a ton of your office was very hyped about the dogs going back to back. <laughs> Not me, but yes. <laughs> okay, okay. I, w- well, I went to Georgia Tech, so I, I try to okay. put that stuff oh, out, of, out there, of memory. There, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sorry. I'm sorry to bring up a, a painful, <laughs> no, it's all a good. painful recent memory event. Um, so lightning round. What is the the first route? What's the first hypersonic route that you're going to fly? Uh, New York, London. New York to London. There you go. A classic. If you could live in any movie or TV show universe, which one would you choose? Star Trek. Star Trek. Okay, that's that's two in a row. The uh, the last the last <laughs> show we recorded is also Star Trek. What vehicle would you take to space? Uh, a Mark II Viper from Battlestar Galactica. Okay. All right. I was I I'm I'm glad uh, that's the first time I've asked that, and I think most people are just going to say Falcon Nine. So <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> oh, in, in non-fictional, that, yeah, Dragon, well, <laughs> Dragon and Falcon no, no, Nine I'm, for sure. <laughs> I'm gonna keep I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it vague because people everyone's just going to answer Falcon Nine. Um, and last question: How many hours of sleep uh, of sleep a night are you averaging? And did that differ on paternity leave versus at uh, you know while you're oh, yeah. while you're well, in, over, in the trenches? Over the past like over the past two days, it's like two. Um, but okay. not because of work. So, um, okay. no, I generally, generally like, you know, six, seven. So, uh, I try to okay. keep that, uh, cool. keep that in good shape. Cause, uh, that's, that's kind of the thing for me that, uh, starts the day out. Right. Yeah, totally. Well, AJ, you've been a great sport. This has been a fun conversation and I'm yeah. looking forward to welcoming you back to talk about, uh, deterrence and, and, awesome. <laughs> and how hypersonics change deterrence. Can't wait. Okay. Space cadets. That will do it for Pathfinder 0033. I'm going to keep this short and sweet to spare my voice. Thanks to AJ for coming on and giving us a tour de force in hypersonics. And thanks to Alltech for helping us keep the lights on. If you like what you heard, leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this or better yet, tell a space obsessed friend, family member, or coworker. Next week's guest is Ariel Ekblah, and it is a very, very fun conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. Until then though, I am Ryan Duffy signing off and I will see you back here very soon.